Welcome to episode 7 of the podcast series. Today was a very special episode for me because I've been wanting to interview Ricardo uh, for months since I moved here in Minneapolis, so I'm, I'm glad I finally had a chance to chat with him and and uh, just get to, get to hear more about his work and what he does and how he sees it and how he envisions his own contributions. Uh, Ricardo has been loosely described as a social ju- social justice artist, I think, and he would he would describe himself as an organizer and I think in, to some extent uh, a healer through his art. Um, but yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, he's contributed a lot to different, um, it, you know, his graphics have been part of various union campaigns, social, social justice campaigns. So you may not have known it, but um, you may have seen his work uh, representing a particular movement that you care about. And you can go ahead and check out his uh, website, rlmartstudio.com, to get a sense of the work that he's done and even purchase some of the images. Um, Some of the great things that we talked about, we talked about a lot of his, uh, we spent some time talking about uh, his influences uh, back in Chicago with the Black Panther movement, in particular Fred Hampton for his uh, cross-racial work. Um... And then, you know, how he came about being commissioned for certain things. I think the, the funniest thing for me with regard to the Lord, the most interesting thing is he just stumped me a lot. I, you know, there's different points where I was just like, I don't know what to ask this guy. And, you know, of course, uh, Ricardo just kind of stepped in and started talking about whatever he wanted to talk about, which is totally awesome. Uh, I think I think in our community here in Minneapolis specifically, he's definitely seen as an elder and someone a lot of us look to for um, just for insight. Uh, he's just one of those one of those types of people that we all really care about. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy this conversation. And yeah, no, I, yeah, I just hope you enjoy this conversation. All right. Well, we'll get started, and then we can maybe get into that because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to start like halfway through that. Mm-hmm. That'd be really weird. Yeah, totally. But we're in uh, Ricardo's studio here in on Minnehaha, and was it thirty eighth? That's correct, yep. And, uh, tell me a little bit about um, just this neighborhood and what brought you here, Ricardo. Well, what brought me here is the, um, you know, with the push factor, the cooperative, the Northland Poster Collective that I had worked with. Um, give me some time frames. Just yeah, so I worked with them for 30 years, okay. 1979 until it had to close in 2009. Yeah. And then I was just looking around for different places to, um, to set up my own studio. Yeah. It was just my own work instead of a cooperative the way that was. And was, I, there, was there any particular reason for moving away from a cooperative model? Um, simply that that closed. It takes a lot of work to create an organization. I needed to land on my feet somehow. Okay. And replicating that organization didn't make sense since I had just folded, right? I didn't want to recreate the whole thing. I needed a way to make a living, <laughs> support right. what I do, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I had a body of work that I'd created over the years. So Certainly. the question is, at least for now, how do I set something up where I can keep doing commission work for people, keep selling the work I created, and so forth. And I looked at a number of different And we'll, we'll talk about your body of work in a bit, but yeah. let's just keep focusing on location here. But yeah, in terms of, of your question, the real issue for me was access. So I looked, uh, for example, um, there was the, um, what's called the, uh, the Vine Arts Building, the Ivy Building it's called. Yeah, it's really interesting. <clears throat> has a lot of art spaces in it. Really hard to get to, though, not, not that convenient. Well, there's also the... Um, the place that used to house the um, Resource Center of the Americas. So the the mural building on the yeah, that's correct on Lake, near Lake Street. Oh, Mosaic Building. Mosaic the Sabathany Center. And looking at that, I realized that each of these spaces has kind of a cultural stamp to it. Right. Like the Vine Building, if you're you know comfortable in artsy spaces, you go in there. If you're comfortable in Latin American immigrant 
you know, politics, you go into the, another space. If you're, sure. you're grounded in the black community, that's the dominant cultural force in Sabathony. And I work with all of these different communities. Right. And so for me, having a storefront... An international scope to some degree. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But in terms of the local scene, which is right. what's relevant for the where my bricks and mortar store would be, having a storefront means everybody feels comfortable right. walking in. That was the experience on Lake Street. That's the experience here. It's like the street is common territory. Yeah. No, and here in Minnehaha is a fairly large uh, boulevard through Minneapolis, mm -hmm. I, I would assume. And then we have the light rail, maybe three blocks That's correct. west of here. which is Yeah, there's a couple of bus lines that come yeah, right by here. Big bus lines. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of eateries down the road. So if, you're, if you've heard of the place, you can go get your coffee and then... Maybe walk oh, down yeah. the street or something like There's that. coffee houses in every direction. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're next to the Minnehaha Free Space. That's correct. Do you have a relationship with them at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I don't um, – I've occasionally used this, that space. Uh, at the moment, there's no con – there's turnover, you know, so that it, it depends. Uh, one of my staffers used to be one of the founding, you know, collective members there, but has moved on from there. So, um, yeah, we're certainly friendly neighbors. And, and the free space uh, is kind of this open sort of – um, educational That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's kind of... Um, People have, like, classes. Anarchist-influenced, right. um, but a full range of... Uh, pretty good, you know, range of age. You know, young people at the core, but um, they involve... You know, they do community activities, film showings, children's activities. So, yeah. it's, it's, you know. so it's a really lively little area, even though it's not... It's not, like, downtown or anything like that, but it's very... It's a little farther out, but it's very lively, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite like uh, Lake Street, which was sort of um, noisy, dusty, chaotic, <laughs> you know, all kinds of random people walking in all the time. It's wonderful <laughs> in its way. This is a little more tranquil, you know? Yeah. I still get some of that random action, which is why I want a storefront. Right. Yeah, as a community artist, I couldn't imagine working in a completely isolated space. So it's like a balance between... Completely random folks walking by because it's just a lot of foot traffic versus people that want to find you that can get at you easily. Yeah, yeah, okay. destination. And um, um, I, I reposted one of your images on my on the Facebook page for Chipster Life. It was the one with um, Monsignor Romero about mm -hmm. Romero and the anniversary of his sure. death. Uh, let's talk about that because it's it's also just a really uh, personally um, enriching topic for me. A, mm. a very sort of Hard to describe my relationship to Romero, but he's certainly someone that I, I think about a lot, and it's mm -hmm. um, I think his message and his story has really always been a focal point for me when I'm having a hard time. And mm. I also have a tattoo of his quote on my arm. Oh, nice! Yeah, trying to hold me. I think, yeah, I think, <laughs> and the tattoo is uh, "Justice is like snake is only bites the barefoot," and I think um, mm. I think it's a really great quote, but it also I think of it as a way of holding me accountable because mm. you know, I think I want to keep living my life in, in the way that he sort of or strive to live my life in a way that he was mm -hmm. kind of working towards. But, <laughs> sorry, Ricardo, but uh, tell me about that piece and that image. Well, it's a piece that I'm, I designed to, um, it was a silkscreen poster, multi, very multicolor, and, and okay. I designed yeah. it to... Um, it's like a frame. To, to mimic a stained glass window. Yeah, right. And I entitled it San Romero de las Americas to reflect the way in which people in El Salvador feel about him. Right. Um, and that's to, to me, that's important. It's really, you know, in the, my art, I try to re reflect the voice of the communities that I'm working with. You know, I'm not Catholic, I'm not religious myself, but this is the way that um, that Oscar Romero that was had, had that was really his relationship with his people. Um, and the work that I do is really meant to to reinforce what I call the um, the collective immune system of the community. So it's stories that inspire one way or another. Now, Romero was assassinated. That's not a good ending. 
No. But if you if you want to consider that the ending, his own uh, statement is that if I die, I'll rise in Salvadoran people. He felt himself organically connected in that way. And but it's a story of courage. And, and in that period, he also talks about it as um, as like a birthing, because there's a lot of blood and pain and birthing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, through his death, different life will emerge. Yeah, and that's sort of, that's both kind of an organic ecological image and, of course, yeah. a, a Christian resurrection type of, right. of, um, of language. Um, and so really... I mean, I don't commemorate every figure that that could be recognized. There are too <laughs> right. many, but I try to tell certain yeah. kinds of stories that nourish in particular ways. Now, Romero was perhaps the um, expression of an ally who um, really with a, a great, very deep integrity. Yeah. Ally in the sense that he was a person with a certain degree of protection. Ultimately, it didn't protect his life, right. but he represented the Catholic Church, and he was very high in the Catholic Church as Archbishop of San Salvador, and he stood up for people who were facing conditions that he was not facing. Right. So the, some of my work reflects people who emerged from the grassroots and fought to organize their own communities. Romero was a, played a different role. Certainly. But yeah. from where I sit, I honor people in all of these different roles because they're all necessary. And I think with Romero, too, what's really interesting about his story is the transformative uh, aspect of him coming from, like, a very sort of academic, detached perspective, you know, really absorbing the stories of, of the emerging military dictatorship and then really being a mouthpiece for a lot of those stories mm-hmm. and his own personal sort of transition and being really involved and, in, in, you know, eventually becoming the martyr that he is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the reason for that is that he wouldn't back down, he wouldn't sell out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When it's, yeah, it's a very stark story. Mm-hmm. And what, what drew you to Romero when you can get into that a little more? Or did you spend time in El Salvador or was it just something? No, no, no. Yeah. No. I, um, but the work I do, I'm really fortunate as an artist in that I get to work with people from so many different communities yeah. in action, both here and in other parts of the world and other parts of the country, so that much of my work emerges from organic relationships in those communities. Some of it I simply create on my own, my own inspiration. Um, Romero was simply somebody I consider to have been part of my community. Mm-hmm. You know, I never had any direct contact with him. But um, so of all of the range of people, was I drawn to Romero? Yes. No more than I was drawn to some of the other people who I reflect in my work, some of whom are globally recognized figures and some of whom are simply obscure anonymous organizers yeah so we're in uh, the cool thing about Ricardo Studio is he also has everything for sale like well, I don't know um, a lot of your images I guess that you've made over the years are they here or oh yes okay yep so. I'm still trying to sell out but uh, <laughs> it hasn't worked yet no one will have me <laughs> so one by one so what let's let's just look around and talk about some of these images so um I can see a couple of images about the undocumented movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what we, there's a something from the Ella Baker Center, Tavon Martin, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Angela Davis. I mean, it's a it's a really broad array of images, and I think for folks just kind of unfamiliar with Ricardo's work, I think a lot of if you've been in the sort of progressive movement or you've seen an image um, somewhere in in an action, I think a, oft, more often than not, Ricardo may have made it himself. Uh, well, I wouldn't say more often than not, but certainly <laughs> often enough. Yeah. Well, when I walked in here, I, would, I, you know, I go back to thinking about living in L.A., and I was like, holy crap. Like, a lot of the things that I've seen, 
you know, in my progressive world in Los Angeles, like, mm-hmm. represented here, you know, so it's really just sort of exciting. Yeah, well, one of the things that I find interesting in thinking back, you know, because I started doing work in movements not thinking that that was what anyone would call a career or a road <laughs> to recognition. So, yeah, right. Um, you know, so that looking back now and seeing, you know, the way my work has emerged appears in a lot of different struggles, that that was really something that was constructed step by step over the years. Sure. It's not like the New York artist story where some big gallery or somebody, right. quote, discovers you, and then all of a sudden you're known by everybody. I can look at my work, I can Google it on the web, and I can look at the different pieces and say, okay, I know what campaign this came out of. Yeah. I remember what community contacted me here. I remember who called me when this poster was first released and asked, can we use this for our organizing efforts? So what were some of the initial images that you were working on? And then, uh, sorry, let's jump into the, what you're doing right now. So if you, people can hear, there's a kind of a scraping sound in the background. I don't know if you can hear that necessarily. <laughs> But um, what are you up to there, uh, Ricardo? Well, I'm uh, doing a picture right now of a very serious-looking iguana <laughs> yeah. in the woods. I've, um, I use the material that I, you know, I scrape away. I'm scraping in a clay surface. Okay, it's a clay to, surface to get the textures. Okay, I've inked on top of the clay, and now I'm scraping away both the clay and the ink, so it looks like a linoleum block or a woodcut, even though it's not. Um, so this is an iguana in the forest. And it's going to be talking directly to the viewer about climate change. <laughs> Basically saying that that planet that you're warming, it's not yours to warm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really, it's interesting because in a way that reflects a lot of my work is still telling stories, in a sense, yeah. from different perspectives. Right. Sometimes it's, a, it's like a narrative. It's, it's really a lot like songwriting. Yeah. Where you get, you put yourself into the head of somebody and you tell their story in some way. Yeah, you think about the vehicle, you think about the audience. All right, and so for me... What I consider these pieces of work to be, more than anything, are re- report cards on my relationships. Yeah. You know, these are the communities I have relationship with, some for many years, and the art develops along those lines. Yeah. In terms of the, your question about early work, um, the oldest piece that I have that is still you know, in distribution here is that woodcut of Angela Davis, which I created in 1970 when she was on the run. You know, on a you know trumped up charge of supporting a jailbreak. And so, for folks that obviously can't see, it says uh, Angela Davis, sister, you are welcome in this house, and it's an image of a very super clear mm-hmm. image of Angela Davis. Yeah, and that text wasn't um, on it when I originally made it in 1970. Okay. I was 14 years old at the time, <laughs> uh, and I have to say that not everything that I drew when I was 14. Is that good? <laughs> That's why that you know there are not a lot of other pieces from that era that I'm still distributing. Right. Uh, but that one came out well. Wow. Well. So at 14, what? So what was going on in your head at 14 that you were working with that kind of content? Well, I had moved to the United States from from Puerto Rico with my family uh, at age 11. Okay. That was 1967. Okay. So that was a time when there was a lot going on. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of shit, as they say, hitting the fan, as they say. Right. Um, and right around the corner from 68, which is after and That's Edward correct. You know, 68 year. was a lot of uprisings. Yeah. It was also the uh, string of assassinations of prominent people, most notably King. Yeah. Um, Malcolm X had Masker, been Masco killed City. a few years before. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so there was a lot of act- activism and organizing. Yeah. And... Really, I had grown up in Puerto Rico in a family that was involved in the anti-colonial movement, okay. the independence movement. 
uh, seeking independence from the United States. Which is like a little lone but really strong movement, too, the Puerto Rican liberation movement. It's what? It was very active, but it's very little, it's very unknown. Right, no, it was was much closer at its peak at the time. It's like very radical, it ebbs and flows. It was part of a global movement against colonialism. Um, And so I had a lot of consciousness about world affairs. Okay. Uh, activist kid, but well, more of a radical kid than an activist one. I did political cartoons and I liked following what was going on. It was really the assassination by the Chicago police of the local Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, mm-hmm. and the statewide um, leader, Mark Clark, that pushed me from being kind of a, a radical kid in my head into an actual activist kid doing work, organizing meetings and rallies and, and doing that kind of thing. So um, certainly... Um, Angela, who was also a member of the Panthers, among right. other things, um, right. you know, her case was simply an obvious one to relate to. Now. And you were living in New York at the time. I was living in Chicago. Chicago, sorry. Right. And so... Where he, Fred Hampton was killed. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and for folks that don't know, Fred Hampton was a leader of the Black Panther movement, and he was shot, like, what was it, like, 67 times? Or yeah, yeah. It was, he was insane. shot. He was drugged by a, uh, the chief of security of the chapter who was on the police payroll yeah. um, so that he was sedated, and when they raided his apartment at 4 in the morning... They simply went straight to his room and, and shot him in his sleep yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Um, and you know, my family had you know some connection to the to the chapter. We were very active in a lot of different politics at the time. Fred was an aspiring figure mm-hmm. and one of the people who the head of the FBI, G. Edgar Hoover, was particularly afraid of right. because he had the ability, unlike a lot of the Panther leaders and a lot of other leaders at the time, of talking people to people across racial divides. In fact, his most famous organizing campaign was what he called the Rainbow Coalition, mm-hmm. which was unifying the uh, Black Panthers with the former street gang, the Puerto Rican Young Lords, and the Young Patriots, which was a, a gang of white um, Appalachian immigrant kids. Mm-hmm. Um, who started out with you know Confederate flags on their jackets? You know it was a real uh, brilliant sort of courtship um, that was you know behind this organizing process. So he was a formidable leader uh, at that young age. He was 21 years old when he was executed when he was hmm. killed by the police. So hmm. um, so I you know I tell young folks today don't consider yourselves the leaders of tomorrow, and don't put up with the uh, patronizing baby boomers who call you that. Um, your time is, you know, whatever you can do, you know, whenever you can do it, that's your time. You take leadership as you're capable of doing it. It sounds like Fred Hampton had a pretty strong imprint on you. Is Are there any images or things that were derived from that? Uh, yeah, I do have one poster, a silkscreen poster I made of him, hmm. uh, certainly. Hmm. Um, what other sort of uh, folks really stick in your memory that way? Are there any others? Well, I guess I, one of the things I picked up early from my parents, I think, was a real sense of the humanity of everybody. So that I tended not to identify people as heroes. Right. Um, I, you know, understood that somebody who we think of in that way is really, you know, they might have great capabilities, but they also have all the weaknesses right. and fears and such as every, everyone else. Right. Really. I think we need role models, not heroes. And I, I right. think I picked that up pretty early. 
so that there are a lot of people I admired, but it wasn't on the basis of fame. Mm. You know, I like to, mm-hmm. you know, and that I try to reflect that in my work, you know, and in the way I conduct my work, because I get a lot of recognition for being a movement artist. I make pretty things, right? It's like, um, like the flower on the on the uh, bush over there in the corner of the studio. Um, it's a beautiful hibiscus flower. It's actually from the farm I grew up on in Puerto Rico, mm. but it can only be there because of the roots, the stems, the leaves, the entire apparatus, right? So that. You know, I entered organizing as a kid, just entering on the ground floor like anyone else, not mm-hmm. as an artist, you know, stapling picket signs together, organizing rallies, you know, talking to other young people, um, doing school walkouts, um, nothing special. And the people who are doing that kind of work, it takes just as much dedication and sometimes more than someone like me who gets to do something that I truly love, yeah. you know, with my art and get all kinds of strokes for Thinking about my next question. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Just taking a second. Yeah, I'll leave it to you. Collect, collect my thoughts. No, I mean, go ahead and say something if you want to. That totally works. Well, I was just gonna say that um, I never decided to be a political artist. Sure. And I still, in a lot of ways, don't really consider myself one. Why is that? Well, because as far as I'm concerned, art just reflects what's important to people. And when I was Five years old, that was chickens that I drew. <laughs> like we were always running across our farm. Um, when I was eight years old, it was pirate ships. Yeah. You know, then I became an adult, and it was overthrowing oppressive global systems. <laughs> but it all to me, it's all organic. Right? Right, right. And I'll do posters or artwork that's just plain silly, and artwork that is very poignant, and artwork that's humorous, and artwork that is used as a tool in organizing campaigns where they're trying to win concrete victories, that's all part of what art is to me. Um, And when you say that something is political, all that really means is that um, somebody has put up a no trespassing sign um, somewhere in the area where you're doing art. So that, um, you know, for example, in South Africa during the days of apartheid, the censors banned the importation of the children's book Black Beauty. Because it, the words black and beauty right next to each other would send the wrong message. Yeah. How can black be beautiful? And so that, that in that context was a political book, a political statement. In another context, it, it totally wouldn't be. Yeah. I think that's the true of all, the, all of the stories that are told in art. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly in the, in the 80s and Latin America, in the 70s, late 70s, 80s, in certain parts, if you walk around with the Bible and you were a compass, you know, you'd be shot on the spot. There you go. You know, mm-hmm. because of the, what that object represented. To, to those in power, mm-hmm. well, and I think I think to sort of perhaps to label your art political also makes it less accessible because it's very clear that what you're creating is very accessible. Nothing's, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to look at it. It's it's pretty, not easy, but it's 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 it's. I don't want to use the word easy. We can't figure out anything else. But it's it's um mm-hmm. it's com- the images are compelling. And it's yeah. user friendly would be the modern, right. modern term, I guess. <laughs> Well, because I don't want to suggest that your work is unsophisticated. But, right. You know, language is, is basic, and but there's depth to the content, you know, mm-hmm. so I think... Yeah, and so, I mean, some of the work, I think, does make you work intellectually. Sure. But that's not the same as inaccessible. Yeah. You know, there's kind of a mythology around the sort of elite world that the mark of good work is that nobody gets it. Right. Except in, other in artists. Comprehension. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, right. that's a very exclusive, you know, kind of way of thinking. Right. Um, but there's yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of intelligence, and I certainly don't simplify anything. I you know simply try to 
of course, create, like any communication, you know, you and I are speaking in the same language right now. If I want to speak to you, I'll speak in one of the languages that we have in common. Right. I won't start speaking to you in some other language. And that's the way it is with art. Who am I? Who is it that I want to communicate with? And how do they see the world? Yeah, because there's a certain reduction in doing that. There's a certain reduction in um, referring to it as like popular art or, mm -hmm. or popular, you know, that I'm not entirely comfortable with. Like that Woody Guthrie one, it's mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of language in it, so you have to sit and read it for a while. But mm -hmm. yeah, and and to me, it's simply good art is art that is appropriate yeah. to to its task. So for some tasks, an appropriate piece would be a very elaborate painting, yeah, maybe on a large scale that would be on public display. Um, for another task, the uh, an appropriate form of art would be a placemat in a restaurant or a button, right. You know, to me, it's simply all on a, um, a somewhat utilitarian spectrum yeah. like that. Whatever is going to do the job. Right. Because uh, abstraction at certain points is necessary because you want to sit and challenge your your, uh, your folks. Somebody's coming in. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Hi. What's going on? Yeah, well, you know, and, and when you're speaking abstraction, too, if you're talking about abstract images or abstract art, that's speaking the language of form, of color, of texture, which is the language of the subconscious, which yeah. is the, the art interior landscape. And of course, even though my messages are often more explicit, I'm still using that language. Yeah. That's the way you get you know, to the, you know, the visceral, emotional, spiritual part of a human being, which is where we really process a lot of our experience. It's a, it's a sensual world that we live in as yeah. organisms. So you also have a blog that you've been working on for some time. I think we talked about that a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of an intersection of the environment and thinking about humanity. And you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, what I'll say is that um, you know, there's a, a number of different projects, including a book, including okay, so a lot of. I do a lot of workshops with organizers. I do yeah. a lot of, you know, work for organizations. I um, one of the main forms of political practice is sitting down for coffee with people. <laughs> right. Um, as a Puerto Rican, the word coffee is a, yeah. a looms large in my, uh, <laughs> you know, in my universe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's what I like to do. But it's yeah, it's really about how change happens. So that my work, for example, is I can think of my art in terms of a, of a medicinal model that what a healer does is come in with a bag full of herbs and see what's appropriate. And some can raise a fever. So there's art that can polarize a situation in a workplace where there's a union struggle going on. Yeah. Or if you need to bring down the tensions, there's art that can be depolarized. There's art that can educate. There's art that can... Agitate, um, um, in, in the shipping area... Sorry. No, no problem. <laughs> you, you can edit there. Um, there's art that can... Um, um, He's just helping out somebody that came in. So it's a big studio. It's um, it's a first floor, so there's a lot of activity going on. There's a whole printing press in the back. That's the real life going on here. Right. There it is. Real life work. <laughs> it's still a shop. It's still yeah. so, activity. So as far as medicinal art, the idea is that um, you know, a healer needs to see what the patient needs. Right. The other principle, though, and this is the principle of organizing, and it's the principle of healing, is that the body knows how to heal itself. Right. That if you, you know, what a, a healer does is help basically support the immune system, right. give you some herbs to jumpstart the immune system and remind it of what it's good at and protect you from toxins. So in any community that I'm working with, the question that I ask 
is at least ask myself is what is it that's keeping this community from feeling its power right. you know not who's stepping on the community there's always out external oppression what is it in the story that this community tells itself that keeps people from feeling powerful and what stories can I create through my art right. that will help counter that can you give me an example of that sort of work that you've done with this particular organization or community here? Just so I can get my head around it a little yeah. better. Well, let me just sort of look around the studio and think of what <laughs> would be a good... Uh, That's why I thought the studio was good, because there's, like, <laughs> there's triggers everywhere, really mm -hmm. nice triggers everywhere. Well, I can give you a number of very different stories sure. that cool. show how the different types of medicines work under different conditions. Yeah. Um, so there was um, one T-shirt design that I created. Sometimes we would create designs and just put them out in our catalog and see who wanted them. So I created a T-shirt that expressed a sentiment that I was hearing from the field a lot of <laughs> organizers that showed a, you know, a row of fluffy little bunnies with their paws linked. Okay. Um, when I say fluffy, it was really cool. The red shirt, and I added puff additive to the ink, so those oh. little buffy bunnies puffed up in three dimensions. Right? Oh, that's their, fun. Their arms were linked, and the text <laughs> said, bosses beware, when we're screwed, we multiply. <laughs> right. So um, I got a phone call about a week after that catalog came out from the Postal Workers Union in Danbury, Connecticut, saying, hey, how quickly can you rush us 300 of those shirts? But put wow. the design on the back because we sit at little computers in our bulk mail center right. and put our logo on the front. You know? right. and we, so that the bosses can see it. Yes, right. Be on their that's back. right. Make a statement. Yeah. Um, see, what happened was that uh, a few months before they'd signed a contract with management in which management said, if we have to shut down this center, we will find jobs for everybody who works here within something like a 30-mile radius. Uh -huh. A few months pass and they say, well, we're closing down this center and our bad. You know, there aren't any jobs. Hmm. Sorry. So people were pissed, and they were also demoralized. And you can imagine they were scared. Yeah. You know? um, so they have 300 workers can't showed up at work wearing these shirts. That's awesome. And management declared, you know, sent out a letter saying, yeah, we saw these shirts. They violate our zero tolerance for violence policy. And fluffy little bunnies. <laughs> so the workers got together and um, called us up. They didn't skip a beat. They said, how did, quickly can you rush us 300 more shirts? Did they ever describe, did the management ever describe what, what was violent about those shirts? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. no. Um, yeah, being management it means never having to explain your logic. Sure, I'm just kind of running with the rationale ones. All right, well, <laughs> whatever, you know. Yes. But um, anyway, they wanted 300 shirts with no words, just bunnies. That's awesome. 300 buttons with just bunnies <laughs> and a rubber stamp. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do rubber stamps in-house and never got around to that, but we got them the buttons and the shirts. And in the meantime, the Postmaster General was going to come down on a routine visit to Danbury. The le national leaders of the union said, we're coming down, we're going to pick at you. Yeah. Um, and the management sent out another letter saying, well, we overstepped our bounds. You can wear whatever you want. Yeah. And by the way, we have managed to come up with jobs yeah. within the agreed on radius. It's like magic. Well, the thing is, I mean, here's, I mean, I call it the annoy them till they drop strategy, but it's really <laughs> um, important to emphasize that it's not because the art was magical. It's right. because it was the right acupuncture needle at the hmm. right pressure point at the right moment. Because well, it showed collective action and it also... Collective and collective morale. Yeah. It's just, it was the first thing, the first action the union had taken that really made people feel excited. And then the response of management showed that they were putting management on the defensive. Right. They were retreating. They were, you know, management sent out this tough letter, which actually revealed their vulnerabilities. Right. 
So then they stepped it up, right. you know. So that's an example of using art. And this, I have plenty. I agree. You spend the whole time on these stories using art to win a concrete victory yeah. on the shop floor in a material way. Right. In fact, the bunny shirt itself it was featured in several of these battles. Hmm. You know, take it to a completely different end of the spectrum. Um, in my barrio, my neighborhood in Puerto Rico, up in the coffee-growing region, um, my sister and I started looking around at the situation there. A lot of kids leaving the barrio, looking for work elsewhere. Coffee is not an easy industry. No, it isn't at all. Um, it's very volatile. Prices right. fluctuate wildly on the international market. Yeah. Um, well, the work itself is also just really taxing. It's, it's difficult work, and what price you can get can depend on what the weather was like in Brazil seven years ago. Right. Because that determined what kind of plantings they did there, and it takes that long for the trees to mature. Right. Um, so it seemed that, you know, and we, we lived in the States, right, Aurora and I, so we were in no position to do on-the-ground organizing in the community. But what we could do is um, notice that the history of the community was not being retained. It was a beautiful area up in the top of the mountain range. Um, the kids didn't know, for example, that that flat area by the road used to be Don Paco's store where their parents all went to school. You know, we went to school in two rooms in the back of Don Paco's, right? One grade in the morning, one in the afternoon because there weren't enough classrooms or going to the, his bakery and getting bread in the morning. But these stories weren't being passed down. So she was doing oral history interviews with the elders. I started making them into posters. Mm. And we would take, anytime one of us in the family would visit, we'd bring a new poster to the community. And they would start these marvelous conversations so the, I remember the first poster that we brought and started showing to people, um, it would start these arguments. You know, people would look at, you know, a lot of them had photographs incorporated into them. And someone would say, hey, you know, look at that, um, that's Doña Sica, right, in that picture standing there just behind Don Luis. And, no, no, that's not Doña Sica. That's, <laughs> that's Don Modesto's, you know, wife's sister who came up from Mayagüez after the flood, you know, you know, in the hurricane of, you know, yeah. 28 or whatever. And, you know, and then, no, 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 no. And and then they and over here in the corner, you know that 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 the cracker tin. That's how we what we used to cut apart to make little stoves. And and these are the elders talking. And then their adult children would be saying, "Ay, mommy, you know, you never told us this stuff." And <laughs> mommy, abuela would be saying, "I didn't know you cared. You were right. interested." And the little kids, you know, just there saying they're wide eyed. So it was this. I mean, as a community artist, I could have died right there, happy, right? But my job <laughs> had been done. But this process has been going on. I was yeah. there three weeks ago and brought back another poster. Take it so to this Don, is still an active it's project. It's still going on. Don Nietzsche's store, you know, I, I bring up stacks of Don Nietzsche. He keeps them under the counter and gives them away to people. Mm. You know, mm. so, um, mm. so that's, that's, again, you have the one story that's explosive, right? The one, yeah. the money. You have another one that just creates ripples. Um, there's a poster that I made once. Um, well, a poster, I'll, I'll Cut to the chase here. There was a poster that I did with another artist called Century of Struggle. It's large. It's um, two feet by three feet. Okay. And it in, it's like an wow. image of a big tree made up of hundreds, about six or seven hundred small images of different political movements that took place in the United States during the 20th century. Right. So it's very intricate. Mm -hmm. It's very detailed. And it runs from to the year wow. 1900 at the bottom to the year 2000 at the top. Right. And the inspiration for that was really came from 20 some years ago in um, 1990. Some students came to me. They were commemorating a piece of history because in 1970, 20 years before that, 
the U.S. National Guard and police guns down stu anti-war student protesters at universities in Ohio and in mm -hmm. Mississippi. And um, they wanted to do an event commemorating that and asked me to create a poster for it. So the poster that I made showed a lot of different struggles that had taken place between 1970 and 1990 in the ensuing 20 years to show that this is not just a static moment in history. The struggle never really died. And years later, I ran into a friend from Seattle. She said that she had put that poster on the wall in her kitchen or on the inside door of her kitchen. And she was living with a young student at the time, one of her housemates. And every morning they had a ritual. You know, she was older. She was more my generation. Mm -hmm. They had a ritual as they ate their breakfast and drank their coffee before he went off to school and she went off to work where he would point to one of the little images on the poster mm -hmm. and she would tell him a story about it. You know, so and that this this large poster was modeled on that a way of getting stories into communities. Yeah. Um, there's one woman who put up a poster of mine called the ABCs of organizing, which is literally like an alphabet. <laughs> the whole poster is an alphabet with really? a word for every letter of the alphabet. What's the dominant image? Um, an alphabet. <laughs> oh, just it? It's okay. like you know woodcutty looking images of all the letters, and okay. then each little image is in a square with a small picture and an explanation. Yeah. Um, and she, this is a woman who worked in um, on a construction site running heavy machinery, one of the first wave of women working in the construction trades, in a, in working having to work in a hostile work environment. Sure. Yeah. Um, the dudes from the Both site. Both from a, a management perspective and just the other workers. Throughout, yeah. Workers, management so. was not supportive. Her, um, she was getting a lot of harassment from co-workers. And unfortunately, the leadership of her union, the all-male leadership of her union, wasn't helpful either. Right. And she said that when uh, you know, the day got too hard for her, she'd go into the shed where she had that up on the wall and just stand in front of it. Hmm. And it would remind her why she was doing this. Hmm. You know, so that these medicines, in that case, it's like an antibody right. or a nutrient where it's needed. Right. And often these posters will find their way to those places. Um, there's a couple of posters that I, a kind of poster that I call the water bottle in the desert poster. You know, there's one modeled on the children's book, Good Night Moon. It's about families of where there are children with incarcerated parents. That's not a mass movement, no. although hopefully it will be, but it's, right. it's a particular segment of people for whom getting that recognition can be very medicinal, right. even though it's not going to be a blockbuster poster that everybody gets. So they all play different roles, and, you know, it's, it's really satisfying to be able to listen to these stories and help people figure out, well, what, what is it that's needed in your community? Yeah, because you described it as organizing, and what I hear, too, is that it's, it's very much about community building and, and developing a broader narrative and, and finding strength in your own narrative as well. Yeah, well, I mean, my perspective on this, years ago, I, it started out sort of tongue-in-cheek, but actually I've come to realize that it's, I believe, literally true is that there really are only two kinds of organizing. Um, there's organizing that sees the narrative in one way or another, storytelling, self-image, how we place ourselves in stories yeah. as being really at the core of what moves organizing forward and moves change forward, and there's organizing that hasn't figured it out yet. You know, and that's really a lot of the work that I do with organizers is around clarifying how you utilize that. So that even if people who are organizing don't think of it in, those, in that language, if they look back 
in retrospect at what was successful and what was not. Right. It really has to do with how well were they able to articulate the community's truth and put it out in a way that gave people courage, um, power, and told the story in a way that created allies instead of, of you know, pitting communities against each other. Right. It's really about a story. Right. You know, and when you look at the way the power structure organizations or the government or corporations try to crush movements, it's by putting out a story that would scare people or alienate people. Yeah. Um, out their own narrative. Or make them believe in falsehoods. Right. And then divide people as well. Absolutely. Figure out ways to divide people. Well, and I think I think when we were talking about Fred Hampton, that certainly made me think about the ways in which uh, we're encouraged to be suspicious of other ethnic groups. And, mm-hmm. Because and that, and that would in turn sort of argue to why Fred Hampton was such a powerful figure. That's right. He was the one building power among different ethnic groups. Oh, no question about that. Um, and that's certainly been a story that I've dealt with a lot. Mm-hmm. It's challenging to work around. Yeah. It's certainly embedded. Um, we were talking before uh, I started recording about a training you're doing this weekend. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? With well, uh, folks of color here in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. Um, actually not. Okay, fair yeah, enough. So that's, that's really their story to tell, and it's not. it wasn't uh, in the context of public forums. It was really... Um, you know, training within their own particular sure. process. So, sure. um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather uh, leave that no problem. to their agency. No problem. But another thing I should say is that my work, I really call myself a healer and trickster artist disguised, or trickster <laughs> organizer disguised as an artist. Right. You know, because the point for me is what is the right medicine, right. not what medicine do I have in my bag. Right. So that, for example... Um, I remember once meeting with a, a union um, a staffer who wanted me to do a cartoon for the struggle his local was going through. And this is a local where the people were just starting to feel their power, and there was a lot of doubt, a lot of people. It had been fairly apathetic before. There are a lot of union locals where people don't even know that the union exists right. hardly. Which is And they, he was trying to wake, awaken a dormant yeah. local like that. Right. And... What I ended up suggesting to him was that, in fact, getting a really nice-looking professional cartoon about their issues from me would just contribute to the boss's narrative that these are out, the union is an outside force with right. all these high-powered people coming in to try to you know, run your life for you, and that rather if you simply talk to the, the, you know, the sister who's always cracking bad jokes during a meeting, and put her together with the guy who was always doodling, you have a cartoonist. Right. And that's somebody who came from within the local. It helps contribute to this idea that we're doing this for ourselves. Right. So they, they needed to figure out some internal agitation before they can start. Yeah. So it sounds like he needed to figure out what his assets were locally, too. And yeah, exactly. And start utilizing that. Yeah, so that, so that my role as somebody who has an organizing background is simply to help them think what is, what's the right tool for the, for, the, for the job. I'm not a technician. Somebody comes to me and asks for something that I believe is going to be ineffective, then I'll certainly give them my perspective on that. Yeah. Um, now it's not my job to pressure them or run rushod over them. So if they say no, this is really what we think we need, of course I'll I'll do that for them. You know, providing that it's not toxic or racist or sure. or anything that's that's really negative. Um, but certainly one of the things that people like to work with me because of is the fact that. I know what it's like to be in those facing those challenges, facing those deadlines, and having to create certain kinds of unity 
within a divided workforce or win the trust of the community, whatever it is that they're, they're trying to do. Just so I get a sense of or just volume, it's hard to just sort of like think about that. So how many folks do you think come by here? How many images are you making at a given period? Oh, I don't know that I can answer that, that I even know how to answer that, because all of right. that varies quite a bit. Right. And I work... Just trying I, to get, yeah, But I mean, I, I would that. say that I have available right now probably a, between three and 400 images. Okay. I think that's right. There are posters. I also have cards. I also have a lot of work that isn't available. Yeah. Because I made it for a particular campaign. You know, right. made it for the day laborers um, Congress in New Orleans, for example. And so it's for them. Yeah. And they use it in various ways to you know, to to build their organization and their movement. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that you know, you don't see on my website because of that, where it's in a in a sort of archival show and tell part of the site, not not a you know, these things not are for, for sale. sale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of these, the 300 or so images, how many of them are up on your website that people can purchase? I'm not sure. Probably more than 200, but okay. I'm not sure exactly it's how many. quite a bit. That's a fairly high volume. Yeah. And that's probably posters. There's also the note cards, many of which overlap with the, you know, have the same images as the posters, but some, you know, are not, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of cards for the holidays or birthday type of, types of event cards that wouldn't make a good poster. <laughs> yeah. And um, so if, if people want to buy your art, where would be, uh, so obviously you have a website. What's the website, Ricardo? Oh, just go wherever there's trouble, wherever <laughs> there's workers finding up for their rights and that. No. Um, well, you could do that too, but uh, I do have a website with my name, Ricardo Levings Morales. It's, you know, it's my name. The, art, the studio site is rlmartstudio.com. Yeah. Um, so... Do you do any traveling exhibitions, or is it just mostly working here and then working on commissions whenever people around the country are asking you to work with them? Mm, basically, I mean, I'll I'll respond to any any um, whatever people need. So yeah, sometimes I'll take an art show. Yeah. Um. So you know, one last year I think it was I went to a um, place in Kansas where they put up my show for a few weeks and then had me come in for a week to help do some training um, for for a faculty retreat. Um, huh. there's, you know, so there's all different things like, you know, do, do gallery shows. That's not my universe. I didn't come up through sort of the art world, gallery world. Sure. It was, you know, more the, you know, community centers, union halls, activism. Um, but now that I've gained some visibility through right. that, I do, you know, say occasionally get that kind and of invitation. And you have a portfolio. Invitation. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the portfolio is the website. Right. You know, I don't basically solicit art world stuff because it really for me the invitations are meaningful when they come from somebody in an in affected community you know it's not like um i'm a prime candidate as far as i know for highfalutin art, art collectors i mean you know some of them will, will collect my art you know well i'm thinking but, like a place like the center for the study of political graphics where yeah. they collect a bunch of images and have an exhibition around the 60s or yeah, liberation well, movements that kind of thing yeah and for those who don't know they're really the largest archive of political posters in the country right. um, i'm on their advisory board and, okay you and, are so you have yeah, a relationship with them yeah one of their staffers was an early member of the northland poster collector uh, here okay. and for years i've been sending batches of my art once in a while when i get a few pieces so they have um, quite a strong you know pretty comprehensive collection of what I've, I've created. Okay. You know, not everything, but I try to remember to keep sending them packets of, of work. Just give them, like, representative samples. Or... Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And what, what's special about them is that they don't simply archive it. Like you said, yeah. they'll put together um, a, sh- a traveling show on the prison industrial complex right. or on youth activism or on anti-war uh, posters, etc. And then, yes, they'll tour that around so people this, this work stays alive, mm-hmm. stays in relationship to people. Well, it's a really great educational tool, too. Absolutely. So people can buy, see it, ask questions, wonder. You know. mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed their work over the years and what they do. Yeah. You got me so stumped, Ricardo. I have, <laughs> usually I have a million questions. Well, there. when in doubt, ask about history. <laughs> Well, as a historian, I'm pretty sensitive to that. <laughs> I do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think about why I'm so stumped too. I mean, I think mm. there's not. You're just so you're so wide in terms of like what you touch. It's hard to figure out like what the what mm. the elo is. You know, like what the thread mm. is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I to me the thread is. Um, I guess I'm trying to get into that. Trying mm-hmm. to get into the threads and figure out these stories. I think the the commonality really is hope. That yeah. as, as a diagnostician, I would say that hopelessness is the underlying condition in our culture that produces all the other ailments that keep people from organizing and being powerful. Sure. Yeah. It's this, this, this sense of, of just not being able to, being up against forces that are too large for us. Right. So that my work is always about agency and hope. Um, and that doesn't mean by any means that I take a hard issue and slap a, fi- a smiley face on it and say everything's <laughs> going to be fine. Right. It really, for hope to be meaningful, it, ha- it can't be based on denial. It has to be saying, well, where is the traction? So that in order to be able to do a piece, I need to know enough about organizing, about trauma, about the things that hold people back to say, well, this, there is something that can be done. Yeah. And this is how I view that. And if I'm not able to do that, I'm not yet qualified to do a piece of art on that topic. Yeah, because you're expressing possibility, but you're not necessarily saying it's going to be easier. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no, no. Because, I, I mean, I, I definitely see that in your images. They're not, I mean, the color choices, they're not all just bright colors that, you right. know, are just sort of detached. I mean, there's there's very dark tones. Right, too, which is the, would true, be true of a, song, a musician as well. You right. Know, you use the tones that are appropriate yeah. to the message that you want to get across. Yeah. But the idea that there's always something you can do, there's always traction, is in itself good medicine. And if you, I mean, if you listen to accounts of people who survived what could be considered some of the worst conditions on earth, which would be, for example, the Nazi concentration camps. Um, No matter how things, bad things got, there was something that they did to survive, even if it was only keeping alive a memory that people actually are capable of treating each other well. This is not the way the world really has to be. If that's all they could do, that was still enough to keep them sane in case conditions approved improved sometime in the future. You know, they would tell each other jokes. Right. And a joke is a way of saying things might be not what you expect. They're all about the unexpected. Well, and I think in the research that I do dealing with the Mons in the Civil War or mm-hmm. the armed conflict, it, I think for them it was also about um, maintaining, finding, maintaining, nourishing whatever humanity they could find and, and maintaining right. that dignity in really stark circumstances. And, not, and, that's, and again, that's not to romanticize people in these conditions. Right. No, but, there's nothing romantic about it, but I right. think it really reflects the remarkable resilience that people have. Uh, Jamie? Yeah. It's okay to interrupt He's, someone. Yeah, it's okay. This is a, a reality show. Cool. Yeah. No, it's not like... Yeah. It's pretty wide open. Uh, don't be shy. 
What's that? You want, and she wants to know what it's for. Oh, it's uh, for a website I, I put together about Latino identity and culture. Cool. And, uh, well, I mean, that's the other thing. That's another funny thing to do. I've been chasing you for a podcast for like eight months or something. <laughs> talking about this for a while. Moving target, yeah. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, in, in talking to the survivors of conflict, it's, it's really mm-hmm. about maintaining that sense of dignity. Right. You know, in these, in these sort of indescribably terrible situations. And, the, and what is really a useful, um, a useful thing to remember about that is that resilience is a natural force. Right. Um, there was an interview I heard with a native elder, I, I believe he was Anishinaabe, who had been taken to a boarding school when he was young. Right. Um, and like many of the boarding schools, of, if not all of them, um, he and his fellow students were forbidden to speak the Ojibwe right. language. It was designed to eradicate that That's part correct, of yeah. It was part of the cultural genocide program. Mm. And what they were told was that you are not allowed, you are forbidden to speak your language on school grounds. So here are kids operating under very harsh circumstances, being denied their culture right. without any training. These right. are young kids. These are Den- not organized. what nourishes them to f- what, what nourishes them. Yeah. And what they came up with was that whenever they went out into the playground, they'd go off behind the trees and start jumping up and down <laughs> so that they could talk while they were in the air and they were not technically <laughs> on school grounds. Right, right, they right. were in the air over school grounds. I mean, that is the depth and the brilliance of resilience, Right, right. You know, you don't need leaders and organizers. You know, sometimes that resilience might come out in unhealthy ways sure. if you don't have guidance, but it's always there, that will to survive and that will to resist and that will to remember who we are. Yeah. No, and I, and I think we're, like we were saying before, in, in being honest about circumstances in life, like sometimes it is an unhealthy representation or mm-hmm. expression. Yeah. And it leads to bad things. I mean, alcoholism does happen. Domestic violence does happen. That's right. Yeah. And these are forms of self-medication for powerlessness. Right. So that on the one level you say, well, here is a person who's trying to regain their dignity. And they're doing so in a completely dysfunctional right. and damaging way. Right. Because people to feel powerful exercise violent or damaging power against somebody else. Right. So how do you take that urge to survive and separate it from the toxicity right. of the one thing that they could see, that they could grab onto, that they thought, probably because of their own childhood experience, that they thought might save them from that, that right. those bad feelings. Right. And the lack of recognition of how self-destructive or reckless of course, those yeah. things are. Yeah, I mean, people who abuse usually feel like they're defending themselves. Right. You know, it's, from the outside, you can see it's a very different story, but... But, yeah, the experience is, you know, disconnected from from what's actually going on. Yeah. And I think in, in my research, too, I think, wow, it's it's pretty horrible to read that stuff every day, to read about massacres every day. I think what I've always found compelling is the stories of how people have maintained dignity, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and, I mean, and also, you know, it's of interest the ways in which often these experiences create an internal crisis in the perpetrators right who are humans too and are not right. constructed to be part of that kind of right. of you know brutality well certainly what Freire talks a lot about where the abusers are also being oppressed as well mm-hmm. and they're i mean it happened a lot in, in what i was just doing a chapter on this or writing about this where 
a lot of the indigenous folks that were in the military conducting the massacres, mm -hmm. they just started forming these like devil worshiping cults because they couldn't reconcile the violence against their own Christian sort of leanings. Right, 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 right. And you have to always reconcile somehow. Yeah. Bring things into line with each other. So regardless, just picking up the phone. We are literally oh, in a studio, good. and it is active. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, just a, a few other random thoughts about being an artist. Yeah. Um, is that art is not something you get to do by yourself. Right. You know, you can work in isolation. I often work by myself. I like solitude. But that it's always, it's a form of communication. So it's always in, in relation to people. Um, and in my case, I'm, I feel very lucky that uh, it's in relation to people who are who are demonstrating resilience. Well, I think it, uh, certainly what you described too is that a big part of your art is storytelling, and those those stories are you know, they're, they're created socially, right? You have to talk to people in order to that's right to get them and yeah, them. yeah. People entrust me with their stories, oh. and um, I mean a lot of the work that I do represents the stories of people in communities that I'm not a part of. So that really requires a high level of trust. Right. So that people will come to me to do a poster, not because they think I really understand their experience, but that they can they believe from what they've seen that I've treated other people's experience respectfully. And therefore, you know, they feel that they can trust me to work with theirs. Right. That's not easy either, opening up your world to someone else and right. having them represent it. And that's a big that's a big it's vulnerable, that's hard for people. Yeah, and it's also something that you have to take, for people in my position, people doing this kind of work, you have to be equal parts arrogant and humble. Yeah. Arrogant enough to know that you have some skill sets to offer. Right. And some challenges that you can put in front of people. Humble enough to know that you don't know it all and that you're telling it's about them and it's not about you as an artist. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons, one of the things people can get caught up on is that when people are used to being ignored or isolated or disparaged. If an artist or a songwriter or whoever creates something that recognizes them, they are so appreciative of that, even if it gets it wrong. Right. Even if there's things right. in it that really perpetuate some falsehood about them or are patronizing toward them or all of these other poisons, you know, someone's offering you water in the desert, you're not going to complain that it doesn't taste very good. Yeah. So that making that relationship honest, making that relationship deep enough so that people will say, hey, you really messed up on this, right. will feel, you know, doing that, and then know that you're not going to run away and have a wounded ego. Right. You know, that we're, we're in this struggle together. That's part of, of the task. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I, think, it's, you know, I think the word that brings for me is integrity, just having that integrity in, in doing this work mm -hmm. and being respectful of their experience. Yeah. But also encouraging them to be involved and, right. and do all that. Yeah, and, and I think any work that we do is, you know, as as a healer, to you go back to the healing um, paradigm, the healing metaphor, as a healer, your job isn't to give everybody whatever herb they came and asked for. You have a role to play in that. So as a healer in social struggles and in communities, it means that I have to have learned something about strategies, about how is it that change happens, right. you know, so that I can use what knowledge I have responsibly. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you've given me a lot to think about, Ricardo. I think that's why I've been so confused, too. <laughs> uh -huh. But uh, our hour is just about up. Um, but I'll edit out the little gaps for just oh, this one gap. Sweet, I was hoping you would. <laughs> <laughs> but is there is there anything um, you want to leave folks with or 
just something to keep in mind. I think I think the yeah. healing metaphor I think is really important because it I think especially in our communities there's a lot of trauma that's carried over generation mm-hmm. to generation. Right. And healing just isn't about for ourselves, it's for sort of like these unpacked layers of trauma that we have to just sort of dissect and, and think about. Yeah, and trauma is um it's very real and it's very widespread. Yeah. And it's treated. It's, it's collective and singular. It's, but it's also what trauma does, it embeds a false story about yourself yeah. and your own powerlessness. Right. I mean, one thing I learned a few years ago listening to Malcolm X's speeches is that essentially what he was doing with his, his oratory was treating trauma. Yeah. Taking traumatized people and telling them a different story about themselves. Yeah. Now, for that to take hold, those people would have to go off and deepen what the shock of what they had heard. Yeah. Um, but that's really what it's about. Yeah. And then offering spaces that people can heal in some ways. Right. And, you know, maybe he wasn't in a position to do that offering spaces, but those spaces had to be created, whether they're around kitchen tables yeah. or in mosques or in organizational centers or whatever it is that people went to. Because no, remember, a lot of the people, even when he was a black Muslim, yeah. you know, Nation of Islam preacher, who responded and resonated with him were not of that religion. Right. Mm. It never became so. When I, and I think the best organizing spaces are spaces where you're getting work done and you're moving forward an agenda, but you're also creating a safe enough space where people can have that healing. That's right. Where they can figure out how to challenge the boss, but also figure out how to mm-hmm. you know, deal with their own whatever is right. happening. And safety, I think, means to me not creating a space where the challenges and the abuses can be guaranteed not to happen, right. but where people have each other's back and people are developing the resilience to be able to to survive those. Because no one can guarantee that. That's right. It's not. So one of the things I wanted to also mention, though, is that when I started doing this work, I really didn't have any role models that matched what I wanted to do. You know, there were people who did political art and that inspired me. And I learned and I copied, you know, from other artists. But like any learning learner does. But I basically had the question, is it possible to create a form of activism using art in a way that is in organic relationships with struggles and that doesn't put the artist above the, the, the movements um, but creates a, a synergistic relationship yeah. where we each can, can help create each other. Um, I didn't know if that, if that was true or not, but I decided to start pretending that it was <laughs> right. um, and, and learning that that might be the case. The other thing I want to say that is that, therefore, I developed in relationship to these struggles and although we haven't touched on this, I want to you know, talk a moment about education sure, sure, sure. for people who want to be doing art, is that arts are one of the areas, one of the few areas, I would say, where if people want you to do some work for them, what they care about is what you can do, yeah. not how many degrees you have. Right. So you can have a lot of credentials, and they'll say, show me your portfolio, and then they can walk away and say, I don't like that. Right. You can have no credentials at all, and they'll still want to see your portfolio, and if you're doing something they like, you know, I'm saying that because I got I had no education. I'm a high school dropout. I did art because I was one of the lucky kids who drew as a toddler and nobody ever remembered to tell me that I couldn't draw. Right. So I just kept doing it. So you weren't discouraged, you just kept I wasn't discouraged, which mm-hmm. is what it's about. Right. But I want to say that as a word of encouragement too, that sometimes people assume that the people who are who do movement art are somebody who went to art school and studied under masters and learned all of or these techniques and then decided yeah. I'm gonna lend my talents to a movement. And in my case, you know, I started out um, participating in um, bathroom wall graffiti cartoon debates with other workers in the factory I worked with in, in, uh, in worked at in New Hampshire. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it, it can grow like, like art, I think, naturally is out of our own lives. 
And to some degree, we get to invent how that's going to be. I somehow managed to create a particular way out of my imagination that turned out with some modifications to actually be workable. And that, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which people can use whatever skills or talents they have, you know, if they pursue it in ways that it might not be clear at the beginning how is this actually going to contribute well, you can't to really, making social change. And you can't really game plan that either. You just have to kind of go with it and trust yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, and really care about the material. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, thanks, Ricardo. That was a great way to end. All right. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye.